Welcome to the Cityscape Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Tanishia Naidu, and today we're talking about the challenges of designing during a pandemic for architects. I recently caught up with Jason Burnside, who's based in Dubai and a partner at Goodwin Austin Johnson, or GADGE as they are better known as. Jason shared some thought-provoking insights on how the architecture profession has responded to a year of disruption. We also looked at the effect of the pandemic when designing schools. And finally, we took on the elephant in the room for designers. In our age of flexible working, is it possible to hone your creativity while working remotely? I started the interview by asking Jason the impact of the pandemic on the regional architecture field. Here's what he had to say. The feedback you're probably getting from most people and what you're probably sensing by just visually can see activity around Dubai, things have certainly slowed down. I don't think there's any way of hiding the fact that not just even within architecture, but construction and numerous other fields, the pandemic really has dented people's confidence in terms of it's now the time to be building, it's now the time to be designing. And bar the projects that we had on site, a lot of the new commissions that we were about to start on, we've been given notice that look, we're going to postpone in five, six months just to see how we get through this pandemic. So across the board, I think that people are certainly looking at reevaluating projects, looking at the scale of them, maybe potentially until they can get a better feeling for the stability of the region in terms of numbers. A lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people are leaving, you know, school places are becoming available, the knock-on effect that that's having in retail. And I think until people can get the confidence back that it's not a time to panic, it's a time to just ease off a little bit and be a bit more strategic in terms of how we develop master plans or we actually start to phase projects in again that is done in a controlled manner and if you recall last year Dubai before this was already starting to suffer from oversupply anyway you know they're starting to feel that guys were moving too quickly you know we're not able to offload as many of these apartments and villas and stuff that we had initially anticipated that gradual winding down it's not been 2020 has been a, a sudden cliff face it's actually for us we've noticed from 2019 the taps have slowly been turned off and the supply is being pulled back to kind of reflect the map. So it's been an interesting maybe 12 months, not an interesting four or five months in terms of just trying to navigate your way around it. And, and we were starting to make some really good progress in other regions like in Saudi Arabia, where they don't have that same issue, where actually they need supply. So a lot of practices we're seeing outside of maybe Dubai and UAE, bigger interest, a bigger appetite, even India, you know, again, people were looking to really push forward and get development underway. So unfortunately, the problem with the pandemic was is that as soon as we couldn't travel, I think a lot of those projects, again, suffered getting it from a discussion to a contract and a contract to a design. And again, the feedback that we've had from a lot of those projects is, look, we're just going to have to ice it for a couple of months until we get the restrictions lifted and people can start to travel again and it will go ahead. So courses for courses, I think Dubai was a different kettle of fish to maybe even Abu Dhabi. And actually, that's a completely different kettle of fish to potentially Saudi and the other countries around the region. Well, you mentioned a lot of architects would have to reevaluate their projects. 
Yes. What about that? Have you guys had to relook at the projects that you're working on, relook at the design elements in light of what's happening? I wouldn't say that the connection was that obvious between COVID affecting how we design. I think what we're talking about is just work stream. I think that one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is a combined effect. You know, you had an oversupply of residential. What we didn't probably anticipate is, is that COVID would have such a huge effect on things like hospitality. And for us, hospitality was 50% of our portfolio. I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of our DNA and our, I suppose, our USP for that matter. And also schools, schools and education were a large part of our portfolio. So just at that particular point, you know, you take two or three key work streams out of what you can offer because, you know, schools have been shut down. Nobody can travel. So hotel occupancy rates are down. Very, everyone's nervous about building new hotels. Retail is, again, really suffering. But because you're not then in the field of other things, which might be, I don't know, let me say, medical facilities, I'm sure companies that are dealing with logistics and, and warehousing and storage space, and all these things that have actually come through the pandemic quite well. And they're actually looking to expand because suddenly everybody's shifted to online shopping. It's a very reactionary cycle where you, you need to suddenly jump from one field to another. And that's not easy in the field of architecture or design because these things take time, you know, for somebody to find a site, commission an architect, you know, do the design, build the building. It's not something you can do in a couple of weeks. So it doesn't respond as quickly as maybe advances in medical testing or the way that things can be done in an emergency situation. Architecture is a very slow moving vehicle that just continues to blow it on. But how you jump off and on that does get affected by where the demand is coming from. So. I think a lot of practices have probably had to diversify. I think a lot of practices have probably had to look at how can they find other work streams that they may not have traditionally been involved with to shore up or to strengthen their base so that they can continue to keep working on projects. We were fortunate. We had a couple of jobs that were still on site. So, you know, through all of this, our focus, maybe or maybe the perception of architects, it's always about design, but there's actually a huge part of it. It's about delivery as well. And projects that were on site that need to be completed, they've had to keep going maybe with their challenges because of restrictions around travel or certainly a lot of the labor camps were at some point, you know, under lockdown conditions. So the contractor and the client and us as a whole were suffering from that, but it didn't stop the project. The design work, the front end stuff did definitely take a bit of a beating at the beginning where Everybody was panicking in terms of, you know, how do we do this online? When you get over the online issue and the video conferencing, you know, that became second nature. It's just restoring the confidence now with clients to get them to continue in this, this kind of situation for the next couple of months, knowing that now is a good time to be designing. You know, now is a good time to be thinking about building because contractors are becoming more more keen to pick up new commissions so they're looking at the pipeline for another six or eight months down the line and there wouldn't be sufficient projects coming through so that will balance itself out and i think we'll, we'll probably find the optimum time to get the bigger projects back up and running again but as long as we can maintain a steady workflow i think most practices will just about get through it well you mentioned an interesting point earlier just about trends and whether they are accelerating now, sort of post-pandemic. I've spoken to a few architects, few of them say, yes, trends are completely accelerated now. Some have said, no, it's still the same. It's exactly what we've been working on before because we're looking two years ahead. What are your thoughts on whether trends have accelerated within your field? I would tend to say that, look, 
the second version that you gave me, I think is more the reality. I think that no one is confident at the moment to completely change how to design a hotel or a school or a shopping center to suddenly respond to what might be a blip. Information travels so quickly that we're all used to everything being instantaneous. But if you look at history of architecture and change, you know, we're still in a kind of a modernist era that started nearly 100 years ago. You know, we're still designing in a similar kind of way. So we're not at light speed. We're not moving that fast. I mean, what changes is that things that have forced people into very small spaces is things like rent, you know, and we've seen a gradual reduction in rent over the last couple of years. So would you have to change how you design an office building now at the moment? Probably not, because if rents are cheaper and I need to space my desks wider apart to deal with an immediate situation, I can do that because I could probably afford to take on more office space. Maybe moving forward, the thing that will change is that we might just not design as many offices because now people have accepted that working from home is a viable way of working in, in, in most industries. That the shift might be that Again, we won't design houses necessarily in a different way, but if rents stay lower, people will have a choice and say, well, I'm going to rent a house rather than an apartment because then I can get access to a garden, I can have an office, that's better for me. Maybe when supply is sufficiently slow enough, then the property prices will come back up, then the rental will come back up, but in a different market. And these are just the natural, I, I think, cycles that construction and real estate and design follow. Maybe on a bigger curvature of, you know, every 10 years, you'll start to see a shift from office space being massively in demand to hotel bedrooms being massively in demand back to housing. I worked in London for five or six years before I came here, and that came off the back of the last, not the 2008 recession, but the bigger recession that was in the mid-90s before that. There was a huge rush to convert office space in the centre of London into loft apartments. It came about because of an oversupply just in office space. So developers were very clever and then they were looking at property prices and they were saying, well, if you want to live in the city centre, why not have a really trendy loft apartment or a penthouse? And you start to see these office buildings get converted into some into hotels, some into residential because there was just demand. And as architects or as designers were very creative and with the right kind of developer, you can see how those trends ebb and flow. I think not that long ago, there was a demand again for office space and people were then converting, you know, other buildings back into office space again and, and co-working spaces and stuff. So this cycle just will always, I think, track through our industry. It's just how agile we can remain as a profession to yeah. see that the demand is swinging from residential to office space or from office space to Airbnb, so people are looking at actually income streams through through different means. So it's a fascinating thing to probably keep an eye on, but I don't think it represents a trend. I think it's just a natural supply and demand, you know, logic that suddenly people are looking to get back into cities, they're looking for central apartments, and now we're saying the trend might be reversing slightly and we're looking to be on the outskirts of the city where I don't have to travel. You're listening to the Cityscape Intelligence Podcast, and I'm talking to Jason Burnside, partner at GADGE. If you want to know more about the global real estate industry, please visit cityscape-intelligence.com. Now, let's turn to the second part of this interview, where the conversation turned towards the education sector. Your focus 
focus is education. Are you looking at education very differently after this year or that still remains the same? I think the fundamentals of how we would design an education building won't change dramatically. I mean, we've been advocating for a very long time with a lot of our clients that flexibility is one of the elements that we would try to bring to any design. And by that, I mean that, you know, within education, there are trends. For sure, there are trends. You know, there's a shift towards collaborative learning, then there's a shift back to smaller classrooms, and then there's a shift and teachers are moving and certain subjects suddenly get a, a huge uptake. So maybe drama starts to blossom again, and then the languages go down and vice versa. So we've always talked about when you're designing schools, making sure that the general planning is very flexible, will allow them to expand and contract certain subjects. But what we're finding now is that with some of the schools that we've handed over recently, a lot of the things like breakout spaces that we've been working with the uh, with the operators and the schools and the teachers to start to look at embedding into the design means that in a situation now where maybe under the rules they may have to go from 20 students to 15 students per classroom because of the social distancing what do you do with those extra five students but if you have the extra space within your school then you can start to utilize that the schools that have been designed very very tightly those five students now need to work from home and you start taking those five students and you multiply that by each age group suddenly you're looking at a, maybe anything up to a 50 percent split of home online learning versus you know classroom based and i think that it won't be so much the architecture and the interior design that will radically change i think it'll be the perception of the operators in terms of schools that are designed to be constantly working at their maximum capacity and therefore sacrificing these additional blended learning spaces or breakout spaces or collaboration zones will maybe start to have to be introduced to those schools as much as they are at the moment maybe in the higher end schools where they can afford to charge higher fees and therefore they can afford to build the extra space that touch wood i hope we'll, we'll see the end of covid soon and we don't get a, a recurring pandemic in another way but people will probably be more cognizant of it and i think they will be more mindful that being in such close proximity is not necessarily a good thing or a good safeguard for the future so maybe the space standards might get slightly bigger maybe the corridors might get slightly wider maybe we'll get more natural light into the interiors to make the whole feeling of the spaces more kind of biophilic we might see more interior landscaping and stuff so i don't think there's going to be a radical change of how we would design a school i think there'll be lots of subtle decisions that might change how an operator will plan a school and operate okay. a school and as designers you know we're, we're always incredibly creative around given problems and trying to solve them but the way that we've been designing schools is say for the last maybe 10 years has been very much trying to bring education design to a much more collaborative open and when i say more spacious i don't mean more spacious by making it twice the size i mean more spacious in terms of how we can utilize circulation spaces to become blended learning spaces or even breakout spaces and i think that's giving those particular schools a better chance of getting through the pandemic without needing to make physical changes to their buildings which unfortunately the older schools and the older buildings are are having to do just because they cannot fit the same number of students in with the social distancing
Well, before we get on to creativity and how Gadge has sort of fostered that remotely, you said something about pandemics and you said hopefully yes. there won't be another one. I mean, we've been yes. hearing academics say, well, we need to kind of ensure that we are ready for future yes. pandemics, that we're yes. implementing pandemic preparedness. As yes. architects, is that something that you are thinking about or when you're talking to your team, is that something that you're also looking at? Until these things are in front of you and you're responding to it, None of us have that crystal ball. The next pandemic, uh, it may be transferred in a different way. Uh, you know, at the moment, we are very much seeing coronavirus as something that's become very contagious. People are still trying to work out really what's the safest way to interact. What may happen in the future, again, is not so much that it comes down to a level of a school, but how governments and how countries identify these problems earlier. So the increase in testing facilities and medical facilities and quarantine facilities might be something that governments look at strategically. I don't think, again, operators will be willing to invest that much money in making buildings twice the size just in case. They'll always take the risk that that far outweighs the, the commercial viability of a project. But what they could start to look at is how they can respond to shutting the school down temporarily and I think all schools in the region have responded to that very well by switching to online learning very quickly and, and very efficiently. That might mean that the leftover from that pandemic is that all schools now will be set up for this for video conferencing so they can switch between the modes quite quickly so you might see investments now more into infrastructure or cabling or better quality LED screens and bring your own devices, you know, because now students, whether they weren't bringing your own device before, for them to continue online learning, they've had to have access to a computer at home. So how parents might think, how students might think, and how schools might respond could solve maybe more digitally. As an operator, they may not see the need to then make the classroom, as I say, an extra 20 square meters bigger just in case. But what we would do as a practice, again, is, is try to advise clients based on a day-to-day -day scenario it's probably a good idea to make your bathrooms slightly bigger than they were before because now we understand that things that are transferred through water or touch, maybe we shouldn't be looking to squeeze those spaces, maybe we should be making those spaces slightly bigger. So therefore, the entrances into a toilet changing facility might not have any doors. It might be done by a series of walls, a bit like you have in the shopping malls, which can deal with less contact with surfaces, might just become standard. If that's what it is, then I think as architects we and interior designers, we can respond to that quite easily. Taps without the need to touch them, so it's all sensors. Same for soap dispensers, same for tile dispensers. You know, shopping malls, I think, have already adopted that, you know, for a number of years. Maybe you might just start to see that becoming more commonplace now, even in not all public buildings, but certainly ones where there's a high degree of crossover between different people. I've spoken with the MEP colleagues and, you know, they're talking about, again, maybe how we filter air and treat air might be something that becomes a bit more front and centre in terms of people's decision making at the beginning of a project in terms of how much they want to invest in the air quality and how you can monitor that and filter that. So maybe there might be some low cost innovations in that that will start to come through because now people are seeing a demand from probably the psychological side of it. Parents want to know that the environment is safe. So if you're an operator that's telling them that, look, we've got a UV filtration system on our air conditioning. OK, that's great. That, that feels like a level of comfort that I know you're trying to go the extra mile. So people will respond to that and new products will come onto the market for sure. So as a combined design community, I think we'll continue to see that and we'll see how people can 
already they've responded incredibly quickly from the furniture companies for office design by having screens and planted walls and stuff and it's because again not because they're doing it purely for humanitarian reasons because there's a good market and there's money to be made so people are diversifying their portfolios to say well okay we'll put a product on the market and we'll be able to benefit from the current demand in those areas it's going to be interesting to watch and and as you say look if, if we knew what future pandemics are going to be we would be so much better prepared, but I think this was a massive wake-up call. You know, I think we've come very close over the yeah. last 10 years where they've had SARS and MERS and avian flu, but somehow I think they were maybe less contagious and maybe there wasn't the same degree of international travel. You know, I think that's what we've been affected by is just how mobile the world had become before this. And that's what just spread it so quickly. Well, we all went into lockdown a few months ago. Yeah. Look at creativity for designers. How did GAD respond to remote working? Did the current climate impact employees' creativity and productivity when it came to working virtually? My gut feeling is yes. We are in a very collaborative environment generally as, as designers, and whether that's you know product design or graphic design or architecture and interior design, where a lot of the inspiration comes from sharing ideas, and those ideas lead to different thought processes and you know, different skill sets can then start to influence the outcome. How it affected us at the beginning was probably not as much as it how it affected us middle of the way through the pandemic. And the reason being is, is you had workflow, you had things on the drawing board that were already in discussion or well resolved. So certain parts of the team could maintain that momentum, even if it was just working remotely, because the collaborative component wasn't so heavily required at that point. It became more linear in that it was producing drawings, specifications, documents. So teams could work remotely quite easily on that. And actually, within the profession for the last couple of years, it's quite common for practices to be working with offices remotely in the Philippines or Eastern Europe or India, where they're using cheaper production centers to do that for them. So the idea of remote working isn't new to our industry. The impact is more on the creative side. Why I'm saying it wasn't there at the beginning versus in the middle was is that when we then realized that that work stream was starting to slow down and we needed to start to get back and look at potential new projects, we were fortunate in that government started to relax on the strict lockdown. And then as a critical sector, you were starting to get back into work. So we started off with a complete shutdown that moved to maybe only 10% back in the office and that gradually kind of grew back up to about 30% again. But we just find that we could probably come in, do a day and then go away for a couple of days, come back in, do a day, go away for a couple of days. Initially to the team that I'm working with now, which is probably more of the creative team in the office, we've been back in for the last couple of months and we're working our usual hours uh, with the sort of distancing in place because we just felt that for us, that's the most efficient way to do it. And it was the most creative way for us. Construction jobs, they obviously continued all the way through. So there was no real impact on them. It was just really the creativity side for us was the hardest to maintain that spontaneity, just sitting at a drawing board. A large part of it, working with our sub-consultants, we could do the benefit of video conferencing was that we saved a lot of time. We were still able to interact with clients in Saudi, for example. Probably easier in many ways because you weren't taking a day, you know, going to the airport, flying, one meeting, come back. There were time benefits that we were able to benefit from. Probably, as I say, it was, it was more the inter-team 
discussions and design reviews that we find the hardest. Working with the sub-consultants, as I say, was relatively straightforward because we don't do that as often. I think we're slowly starting to get back into our stride now again of keeping a, a kind of creative team local to the office so that we can, we can just generate uh, more ideas quicker again. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, that creativity virtually is quite difficult for many architects. Well, is there any advice that you would give architects who are still in lockdown struggling at the moment to try and foster creativity whilst working remotely? It's very hard to say what works for us would work for everybody else, but I would say that one of the things we've realised is that we are a very social community as well. And I mean that in terms of just having a coffee and talking and making sure we're all okay and you're you know you're in a mindset that you're not feeling that pressure of isolation and i think that as i said earlier the well-being environment i think can be a big factor on your own creativity you know if you're sitting at home and you've got four blank walls and it's not happening it's probably not happening because you're not comfortable and you're not able to get into a mindset that you're relaxing enough to start to analyze the problem and start to generate ideas and that's at a very individual basis the ability to do just this you know just to get on a conference call talk it through, speak to your team leader, you know, look, I'm really struggling at the moment because I just can't quite get this to work. Okay, well, maybe can you stop that project for a minute, go away, do a bit of research on something else, come back and then we'll, we'll pick it up just so that you can start to clear your head, which is a normal process that would have in the office anyway when, as I say, you're getting up, you're going to make a cup of coffee, you're going, you're being part of another design review and then something that somebody says to somebody sparks an idea. And the problem with isolation, I think, is it does get us to start to think again in a very confined manner, which an office environment tries to kind of dissolve and get rid of because you're constantly talking and engaging and sharing ideas. So probably if they have the ability to connect with their wider team. And one of the things that we've Elaine's been very much part of as well is, is these online seminars and webinars and stuff. That was something that never existed before, you know, and I think if you can tap into that community where people are struggling, you know, they're sharing ideas online, it can be a, a source of inspiration, but also it's just a sense that we're in it together and we're all suffering from the same mental blockages because we're just not able to get out. But I know in my own first month, I only did the first month at home. I still had to get up, I still had to open the front door, walk outside, even if it was only for two minutes and stand right on the limits of my my property just so that I didn't get a fine. I just needed to change the environment. I just needed to look at the sky and because that cabin fever, there's four of us at home at that point because the kids were back from school, my wife was working from home and it's like I need that routine of, of, um, of just stepping outside of the house every night again. for listening to the Cityscape Intelligence Podcast. For more news and information about the global real estate industry, visit cityscape-intelligence.com. I'm Tanisha Naidu, and until next time, goodbye.